21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century? And how can we best embody that aliveness while dealing with the unique stressors that we face in this strange and potent time? I'm your host, Brett Kane. I'm a licensed massage therapist and mindfulness meditation instructor. And joining us in the show this week is Jacqueline Freeman, author of A Song of Increase, Listening to the Wisdom of Honeybees for Kinder Beekeeping in a Better World, and a biodynamic farmer for the past 20 years. This conversation was a really nice and juicy one in that this entire thing is going to be about biodynamic farming, which is something you will learn about in the first 10 minutes. But it goes quickly beyond that into the nature of intuition and how we actually are able to enter into a conversation with nature in which we are actually receiving direct messages from Mother Earth herself. So Jacqueline has spent 20 years as a structural integration practitioner, uh, which is a form of body work for those of you who are unfamiliar. I do have two episodes on that with Thomas Myers and Russell Stolzoff from a couple weeks, a couple months ago. Um, and we really talk about how that influenced her approach to um, farming. So the transition from a bodywork practitioner into someone who stewards land and eventually stewards bees. So uh, some of the common themes that are interwoven throughout this conversation are how her connection to bees actually helped her make a connection to herself and to nature and her deepening relationship and growing respect for our fuzzy little friends and the implications that having a healthy beekeeping practice has for the rest of your life. You know, you have so many lessons that end up coming through, and we talk a lot about her journey and her connection to intuition. If you're hearing um, the voices, uh, my roommate is talking to her cats, so I'm not going to edit that out. I think that that is uh, very sweet, and everybody should hear uh, Randy Ford talk to her cats. It's very wonderful. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing today. I thought that this was a really great conversation. Um, it definitely hit home in a lot of really unique ways. At the end, we talk about her journey into immersing herself into a swarm of 50,000 bees um, without protective gear. So I thought that that was really sweet. One of the really cool takeaways is like the the medicine of getting stung and you know everybody's apprehension towards bumblebees and or honeybees, sorry, and just how some of like the the most sharp edges of dealing with them is actually some of the most potent realizations we can get from them. So that was really cool. We also touch up a lot about like our food system, the conventional mainstream food system and how we uh, manage meat. So a big part of the biodynamic conversation is essentially that everything is imbued with spirit from the plants to the land to the animals that we're shepherding. Um, so we do have uh, a conversation on the idea of vegetarianism, and it doesn't get preachy at all, but from her perspective, her transformation from eating meat to not, and what it was like to take care of animals and to try and balance using them for food, but also learning how to love them and show compassion to them. There's a lot of really cool takeaways from that conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, the theme throughout is um, using bees as a method to coming to awareness, using land stewardship as a means to expand your spiritual practice. So it has a lot of things that I really enjoy, and uh, I really 
really honor my time spent with her. So that's what we got going on today, y'all. If you want to keep in touch with Jacqueline's platform, she's got a new book coming out this upcoming year, uh, her current book uh, from 2015, Song of Increase, Listening to the Wisdom of Honeybees for Kind of Beekeeping in a Better World, can all be found at spiritbee.com. Uh, she has a lot of really cool resources. She does uh, a few talks for, um, you know, she's done stuff with the USDA. She's spoken at the International Agriculture Conferences uh, throughout all of Europe. Really influential person in this field. So it's really rad. It's really dope. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to stay plugged into this show, um, if you want to catch up on any old episodes, be plugged in for new episodes, you can subscribe over on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, anywhere you'd find podcasts. Uh, big tip, if you want to support the show and you don't want to do so monetarily, you can actually just leave us a review. It's very simple. It's very quick. Um, takes less than five minutes, and it really does help the show out an immense amount. And I say it every week because it is the biggest metric um, for having the show reach new potential guests, other listeners. So if you have gotten anything from any of these episodes, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Truly, I, I read them. I take them all to heart. If you have any constructive feedback, shoot me an email at 21stCenturyVitalism at gmail.com. Um, I'm very open to conversation. If you want to be a part of the show, also shoot me a message. I'm always looking for interesting and unique folks with beautiful perspectives to expand this conversation of what it means to be alive in this uh this current century and this current generation so that's what we have going on y'all thank you so much for tuning in uh please sit back drink some tea do some stretches and welcome my new friend Jacqueline Freeman okay we are now live Jacqueline Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you on. Um, we were just talking a little bit before um, how I found your work, so I just wanted to also give a shout out to uh, my last guest, Michelle C. Johnson, uh, for having you um, in her book as one of her quotes, <laughs> which we found out that you didn't even know was a thing, so that's kind of funny for me. But yeah, I just want to start off by saying, how are you? How's uh, how's this transition into fall been treating you? I'm not sure. Are you, uh, you're West Coast, right? Yeah, I'm in Washington State, where it rains all the time. And yes, true to form, it's been raining every day. I love it. <laughs> oh, wow. I honestly, I, I love the rainy season. I mean, I'm in Michigan right now. and We definitely will, in the fall, we've been having a lot of rain. And there's just something about it that's that's really sweet for me. So that's cool. I'm hardwired into it. When I was when I was a, a kid, I and I first got my license in my car. I couldn't skip school every day, but I could skip school on the rainy days. I lived in New England, and so every time it was a rainy day, I told my girlfriends to meet me at the bottom of the school driveway and we'd go have an adventure. So I'm hardwired to every rainy day is a anything can happen day. So like today, it's an anything can happen day. And I just love it. When I moved to Washington, it was like coming home. Yeah. You're like, oh, wait, it always rains here? This is amazing. <laughs> it's an anything can Every happen day. kind of life. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
so yeah, I was kind of saying before the show started also, um, you know, I had stumbled across your platform primarily through the beekeeping work that you do, but I found out that that was just one element of this world of biodynamic farming that you have invested most of your life into. And I've never actually even heard of it before I stumbled onto your platform. So I imagine a lot of my listeners are also maybe not privy to it. So in like the best, most round way that you could explain it, what exactly are we talking about when we say biodynamic farming? Everything on our farm has life in it and everything is treated that way. So whatever we've done, and we've been farming for 20 years now, when when I go to plant the carrot seeds, I talk to them. I tell them this is a great place to be born and to come and be the fullness of their presence. And everything we treat that way, whether it's a cow or bees or apples in the orchard or carrots that we're growing in the garden, everything is filled with spirit. And that's what I'm looking for is what can I do? What's my, my job to, have, to bring that spirit out? How can I make this place safe, filled with kindness, uh, tremendous respect for everything that grows here? That's kind of it in a nutshell. And I know this, this more technical aspects of it, and I've been through all of that in my background, but that's not really what it comes down to. You know, it's, it really is, are you connected with spirit in everything you do? That's what I'm more interested in. I love that. So did that kind of come second in your world or in your journey of farming or was that kind of like the first impetus? Was that you started farming because you wanted to connect with the spirit within nature? Like what came first, the cart or the horse? Um, yes, but one thing you don't know, and you're going to be really surprised about this. Um, I, did, uh, I was on faculty for one of the structural integration schools for 20 years. And that proceeded oh. farming. Oh, yeah. And I knew that would put a smile on your oh. face. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. So, yes, I know. So you had a... Mm-hmm. No way. Okay, cool. It's all coming full circle for me. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? And I didn't know that you were interviewing and I, I did, I read, uh, listened to both your interviews on structural integration folks. And it was like, oh, I'm home here too. <laughs> yeah, so whoa, there, that's so cool. Yeah. So there, what we're looking at is integrity of the body. And how does the body have a relationship with nature and therefore with spirit, with gravity and with spirit is most of all, you know, people who are compressed and too tightly wound miss out on that connection with, with spirit. And when your body frees up, whoa, all of a sudden you have access to things you never had access to. So I see it actually as kind of a nice roll right into this. Yeah, yeah, that's sweet. Do you think that by engaging with nature, like a conversation with nature, that you have an opportunity to do some of the similar opening up that you would in a traditional like structural integration session? Do you think that some of that kind of carries over? I think it's more a way of how you're present in the world. That's more mm. what I see. And I, I feel that around me all the time. And I see that also as a way that nature is, is getting back in touch with me. You know, we're reconnecting. Um, I was clearing out a, a, some dead trees down by the, one of our ponds. And it's just a little small pond. And I cleaned out everything and, you know, said, 
I was sorry that the tree had died and had to be cut down, and I was making amends to it for that. And I left and came back up to the house, and three days later I went down to look and see, and everywhere that we had cleared out this tree was filled with mushrooms, like a kind I hadn't seen here on the farm before either. It was like this celebration of mushrooms everywhere. And I felt like, that's such a clear answer. We did this this action of taking a tree down, which I didn't want to do because it's hard. Um, it's, it's hard to say, I recognize that you're passing on. Um, but I did it, I tried to do it in such a good way, such a way of, that was full of heart and acknowledgement and recognition of all the good this tree had done. And then I saw that as, whoa, all these mushrooms just came out of nowhere. And it was amazing. Wow, it's amazing it was, how it even a, like acts of... It was such an answer. It was such an answer to, you know, am I, am I doing this in the best way that can be done? And I got a resounding yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Do you often find that that is the case when you enter into a conversation with the the land that you have? Do you find that you're constantly in a world of receiving answer to maybe questions that you might not even be asking? Yeah, all the time, all the yeah. time. Yeah. And rather than being intellectual about it and saying, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this action, I think of it and then I say, what would you like done here? And sometimes I get answers, not all the time, of course, but sometimes I do. And sometimes the answers are not really what I had planned on doing. But if it comes from me versus it comes from nature as a thought entering me, I'm going to go with the nature one. <laughs> it just yeah, makes yeah. more sense because I ask a question and then there's an answer. There's a response. There's an acknowledgement that we're connected. And that makes me feel really, really happy about uh, furthering this connection all the time. So do you feel like the connection is deepening as you you continue on this path? Or do you find that, like, what, what's, like, the, the nature of the relationship that you have with it? Is it one that's ever expanding? Or do you kind of find a familiarity with where no, you are? No, I think are? it's more like the familiarity. I'd like to say the expansion happens in a deeper, bigger, broad, broader, more all the time. But that really isn't my experience. It's more like you get on a wavelength and you're there. I hope that doesn't sound too flaky. <laughs> no, no. I think, I mean, if that's the closest thing that you can use to describe the experience, it gets really liminal when we're talking about stuff like this. So I think that that fits. So is this something that you've kind of always had an attunement to, or was this developed through your structural integration work or what was like the first impetus where you realized that you were in constant conversation, we are in constant conversation with nature? That's actually a really interesting question because I was raised in a family in New England. I was the oldest of four kids in a small town. And my mother, rest her soul, she died this past year. My mother raised us to be acknowledging of listening to the internal voice. And I don't think many kids got to do that. And I did. And I'm ever grateful for her, for her really saying, you know, this is okay. She used to do this thing that was so funny. We'd be sitting in the living room and she'd go, phone. 
And then the phone would ring and my dad would go, oh, please don't do that. It just gives me the willies. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. What do you think that is? That level of like pre, I don't know what they call it. It's a level of presence. So, and I can't say that through my whole life, I've always had it. This, you know, this time's when I was clearly not on the straight path and, you know, just not really well connected. And then I'd get back on the path again. And uh, my experience with... Go ahead. I was going to say, do you think that the moments of falling off the path are actually what kind of highlight what the path actually is? Like they're kind of important things that push you forward. That's such a wonderful way to think of that. I hadn't thought of it, yeah. but I will now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, by by that I mean like if I get cranky, you know, that's me falling off the path. And you know, and then mm-hmm. I remember, oh yeah, do I are my actions bringing peace in the world or am I just being cranky? <laughs> and which yeah. which one feels yeah. better? Obviously bringing peace right with my within me and into all I interact with it's a lot more fun yeah yeah I'm a big studier of uh, Tibetan Buddhism if I have any like wisdom lineage I would say that that's the one and something that they always say and it kind of is a testament to my statement earlier was that um, whatever is happening is the path so (laughs) the anger actually is the path and it's like the crankiness is actually the vehicle of transformation that allows us to bring more peace into the world and it's a matter of engaging with it and alchemizing it rather than like oh we gotta you know like everything you know we we fell off and now we got to get back on it's like that actually is indicative of being on it you know yeah i I have to agree with you on that yeah yeah so uh, yeah how did this transition from structural integration turn into farming like how what was the moment in your life when you were like i want to pivot in a pretty massive way well (laughs) massive on the superficial level but but, you know deep it's all the same but yeah what was that that journey like for you um it was not expected i could say that i owned a holistic health center on martha's vineyard i moved had moved out to the west coast uh after you know, almost two decades of working. And um, I was on faculty for for HelloWork, the Structural Integration School. Everything was fine. My identity was 100% Structural Integration. That's who I was. That's what I did. That's what my days were all about. That's what my client work was all about. And, you know, one day, I remember this so well. One day I had this little voice in my head that said, you're done. And I said, what do you mean you're done? I said, you're done. And I had no idea how that could be because I was 100% a structural integration person in every aspect. And I kept thinking about that. And I had this experience when I was working with my clients. I fell in love with every client I worked with. I loved them from the bottom of my heart. And every minute I was working with them was... I was really good at what I did and I cared deeply and I was with them as they went through changes and I I loved the work. And once I heard that little voice say, you're done, I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. 
But then my physical experience had shifted at that moment too. The next day I went into work with a client and this is going to sound awful to say this, but it felt like I was working on meat. I had no connection anymore. I lost it. It just fell out when I heard that little voice say, you're done. I was done. And I tried a lot of, you know, Kubler-Ross stuff of bargaining and, you know, denying <laughs> everything, like going through all the things saying, but who am I if I'm not this? And I just got the sense there was something else waiting for me. So I headed off into the great beyond. I would wake up every morning saying, you know, and you know, in the morning when you're not quite awake, but you're not really asleep and you put yourself together. And I think there, I'm a structural integration practitioner. No, I'm not that. I'm on faculty at the school. No, I'm not that. I have clients. No, I'm not that. And I'd come down to, I had just gotten married that year to my husband and I, and I came up with, well, I'm Joseph's wife. And that was the only one I could get a yes on. And that was like, not really what I was thinking is my entire being was the wife of my husband. And I didn't know what was going to come out of that. And I spent a long time um, wondering who I was going to be next and waiting for some clue to come and tell me. And I had a sense this was funny. My husband was doing structural integration too, and he had just recently switched over to horses. Uh, he started, this is back in 1994, 95. And uh, he had been working with horses for, let me see, we bought the farm in 2001. So we had just moved here. And he was, he had a lot of people who were wanting to come and practice with him and come and see what he was doing and learn how to do it, mostly structural integration practitioners. And so he had this little group of people who would follow him around. And he said to me one day, he said, I've got three people with me today. One's, a, this is probably their 10th time following me, shadowing me. The other one's been about five times. The other one is their first day. He said, I can't keep straight what I've told each of them. And <laughs> that afternoon I was walking down the stairs of the house and I was talking to the house, which sounds funny, but I was saying, why did we buy such a big house? We bought the house, we bought the farm for the land. We didn't care what the size of the house was. It was a hundred year old five bedroom house. Um, and it was just the two of us. We don't have kids. We didn't have a lot of company. And I just got this sense that I should, I should do a school for my husband. I'll, I'll form a structural integration school for horses. And I told him that and he said, yeah, go, go for it. And I said, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. I'm going to do this for eight years. That just is like, for eight years, I'll run the school. I'll help you build the practice. And at eight years, something else is going to happen for me. And I, it was just an intuition. So we did that. We formed the Equine Natural Movement School, which my husband is the prime teacher at. And we've been doing that for many, many years now. And then in my eighth year, it was interesting. We had bought the farm. My first year, we got bees. Um, someone gave me some bees. They said, I have a friend who had, um, a friend who just bought some land and it comes with a beehive on it. She doesn't want the beehive. Can you take the beehive? You have a farm, you should have bees. And I was like, well, never had bees before, but that does sound very logical. Okay, bring them over. <laughs> and I got the bees and, and I was, absolutely fascinated with them from day one. I would get dressed up in my bee suit 
you know, the full hazmat <laughs> outfit. And I would go sit down next to the bees and it was June, July. It was hot. I was sweaty. The bees could have cared less if I was sitting there watching them. And over time, I got really quite comfortable with them. I went at the at this time, I went to take a class in how to keep bees. And it was a conventional class. It was just, you know, here's the chemicals you put on them. Here's the Here's how you gather the honey. Here's how you kill the queen every year and replace her with a new fresh queen. And it was all these things that I, I didn't know anything about bees, next to nothing. But I knew that this was not the path to taking, tending bees the way that I believed it should happen. I mean, I was just starting up the farming and I was really understanding that you have a relationship with nature. And then, and I thought, I can't put chemicals on my bees. I have an organic farm. <laughs> How can I say that to you? Everything on the farm is organic, except the bees. We put chemicals on the bees yes. because that's what yes. I was taught in conventional bee school. GMO yeah. bees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So while I was doing this, as time was going by, I kept saying to the bees, now this is pre, pre-internet, kind of, you know, back in 2000. There wasn't a lot of online, there weren't a lot of online classes or anything like that. So then there were no books on this kind of keeping of bees. So I would go down with them every single day. I'd go down and sit next to the bees and I'd say, I don't know what to do, but I want to do the right thing. I want to do right by you. So I think you're just going to have to tell me what to do and then I'll do it. And I did this with no background i just sort of went with well this doesn't seem right and i don't know what to do so a lot of times my approach was and i don't know what to do so i'm going to do nothing and actually doing nothing in that situation is probably the smartest thing i could have done so i i went on like that for quite a while and and i think it was about my sixth year of beekeeping so i've been beekeeping almost 20 years yeah 20 years now Um, My sixth year of beekeeping, I woke up one morning and I had like this little story in my head about something about the bees and I wrote it down. (laughs) And then when my husband woke up, I said, let me read you this thing I just got. This is interesting. And it seemed to be information about the bees. So, and the next morning it happened again and it happened again. and, And it was like I had this access to information coming from the bee side of it. And it felt true. It felt true in every way. And I had been teaching bee classes with my limited amount of knowledge, just teaching people the very, very rudimentary basics of it. And I was starting to incorporate this information in. And I got a lot of good feedback from people who were taking my classes. Like, this is like seeing the world from a bee's perspective, which was exactly what I felt it was and indeed what it really led me forward into more and more of this. It was really, it was a positive delight. My experience when I was going through that, that intuition and bringing through this information was, um, it had a rightness to it. It had a, a way of seeing the world that I hadn't experienced before. And you've read my book, you, you know, it's, it opened something up. And I have to say, too, 
that I wasn't, I'm a smart girl, I'm a quick study and all that, but frankly, this stuff was sometimes beyond me. Sometimes I had to go on the internet and look up stuff that they had told me because I couldn't understand it. Some things, sometimes they would talk about things that were more related to physics, not my forte. You know, and some of the yeah, language, wow. some of the words I w- they would use, I would have to go look up. So, so I did, I ended up writing the book and it's done wow. really well. Yeah, that's amazing. So do you remember the first story that you kind of got downloaded from the bees? Like that first breakthrough? Oh gosh, I could probably go back in my books, <laughs> and look it up, but I don't remember because it came kind of fast and furious after yeah. that. Yeah. And I, I think I think about this a lot. Why did that happen to me? And I I don't know. I mean, I've never taught a class in how to have the bees talk with you because I don't know what I would yeah. say. I think yeah. Yeah. why it happened to me was, first of all, I asked them. And I asked them for six years. And I asked them almost daily for six years yeah. saying, teach me. Teach me the way that helps bees be the best they can be. And I didn't bring a lot of baggage with it. You know, it was like if I got an intuition about something or got some true information, downloaded that with that way, I followed it. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like like being humble is one of the prerequisites for nature (laughs) to give you its gifts. You kind of have to bow and understand that, like, it's not something you can extract the knowledge or wisdom from. You have to be bestowed that kind of wisdom. So the fact that you, I mean, six years is, that's some persistence, you know, if anything. I mean, that is definitely building trust. Yeah. That's really made me think a lot. It's made me think a lot about where, where intuition comes from because I've had numerous experiences in my life with pretty darn good intuition. And, you know, I don't consider myself whatever occupation that would lead you into, but I know I listen to it myself. And sometimes it's, it's curious and strange information. Yeah. I, um, when I was living on the vineyard, I, had, I was living in a little tiny house and I had rented it for the, for the year. And I got this idea one day <laughs> that I was going to dig a big hole on the side. I had grown up in in a part of New England where we had a swamp next to our house, and I loved it. It was filled with frogs, and you could hear frogs. Every night I fell asleep to the sound of frogs with my windows open. And I thought, I'm going to put a big cast iron bathtub in here. I'm going to fill it with water and put plants in it, and maybe I could attract frogs. And so I started digging this hole, and it was just me by myself. And I got a shovel and I was digging this hole and I got down about two feet and then I hit this big rock and couldn't get around it when I was tapping the shovel all the way around it. And I finally dug it out and it was a cast iron bathtub buried where I was digging the hole to put a cast iron bathtub. What? So I dug it. That's so bizarre. (laughs) I filled it up with water. I put water plants in it. And sure enough, a few days later, frogs showed up and I got to hear frogs again. Now, I don't know why that happened. If I had been yeah. four feet over on the other side, I would have dug a hole and put a tub next to a tub underground. 
<laughs> it was tubs exactly. all the way down. <laughs> I mean, where does that? What makes that happen? Why does that come to you? Yeah. I, I, I take it as encouragement that I'm on the right path when things like that happen. Yeah, but I've had yeah, it's hard not to. Where, <laughs> I've had numerous experiences where something kind of some information comes forward and then i say okay i'm here yeah yeah it's interesting to me that so much in our society here in the west and i'd say probably in europe too there's kind of a like looking down on the intuition you know it's kind of seen as this like feminine lofty kind of like not important like bystander of some ancient archaics you yeah. know yeah like let's remnant of What's let's that? Have, let's have the facts. We're only interested in the yeah. scientific facts of this matter. Right. Well, and I think a big part of that is that we want to control things, and especially nature. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying about being humble in the face of nature. And then it bestows its gifts and its wisdom upon you, but we haven't allowed that process because we're too busy with our advancement and our moving forward. And that's something that I really wanted to like always touch up on this show and why I think you're such a great fit because I think that there is an essence of vitality in the surrender to the fact that we are a part of this interdependent web of being that exists in us, between us, you know, and it, it, it's all connected in that way. Well and said. I'm just, yeah, thanks. I'm just curious. I mean, you might not even have the answer because I don't know if anybody has the answer to it, but as somebody who has always had this guiding your life, like that small voice that your mother pointed you out to, like how can people who have never experienced that, how do we work on cultivating a healthier relationship and conversation with nature when we might be really disconnected and numb to that? Well, I think it really comes to of listening, you know, I knew nothing about bees. I knew nothing about how to take care of them in any way, but I showed up every day saying, help me, help me and I'll listen. If you say something, I'll listen. Now I didn't realize at that time that was going to become quite literal, that they were actually going to speak and I could hear them and I could listen. Um, but I think, I do believe that the sincerity of my question had something to do with that, that I was unwilling to rely on information from people that didn't seem to have the best interests of the bees at heart. You know, bees were being used, raised and used for, let's collect and sell as much honey as we can, or, you know, let, let's, I don't know, it wasn't putting the bees first. And that was yeah. what, was, what I was more interested in. So I yeah. think that's, that's a really big part of it is to show up and acknowledge that you know nothing and see what comes forward. And you may have to do it for six years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's really hard to meet the bottom line when you, you know, you have profits to make. And that's kind of like the, our relationship to nature is one of extraction and entitlement rather than, <laughs> and I think that that's something that like really clamps down on what the human experience actually is. I think the healthiest human experience is one that recognizes that we are terrestrial and we need to have relationship. It's not that ancient story of the Bible where, you know, like, and God gave us the planet to exploit and destroy, <laughs> you know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think work that you're doing, I mean, you've, uh, if I've read correctly, you've given like beekeeping talks at like with like the USDA, haven't you? Oh, I got hired to go to the Dominican Republic and work with, um, with traditional farmers and beekeepers, ones who, and, and the intent of the USDA, it was really a wonderful program. The intent was to, um, they were never going to be commercial, conventional beekeepers because they had a tradition that, you know, was from the 1600s or something, you know, and what they were looking at was they had sent in scientists to work with them, showing them how to do all of these things. I remember this woman one time when I was lecturing and she's, it, it, this was in Domin Dominican Republic and, and these are rural people. And I said, when you've had the scientists come, the teachers come before me, what, um, what did you do or not do? Or, you know, what was your experience of it? And one woman said, they told us to put poison on their, on our bees. And she said, I can't do that. I love my bees. And that was the connection that I had with them was they loved their bees. I understand that. And she didn't understand why you would put poison onto something you loved. It was like, great, we're on the same page here. So we were working on coming up with something they could do that would be, that would stay within their, the level of caring that they had for them. So that was really yeah. quite nice. It was, it was something that would, I think, not work on a commercial level. Um, but that was the whole point was to find, you know, their, their annual income was $1,000 a year. You know, if they could increase it by $150, that's a significant increase in income. Yeah. So it was really yeah. wonderful working with them. They cared so much for their bees. They loved them. They were already talking with them. It was almost like the best thing to do would be get out of the way. Yeah. They'll bring yeah. in systems that yeah. are counter to what they're already doing. Mm. So what, what do you think is one of like the biggest things that you've learned from them? Because I'm sure you didn't go there to like teach them and like offload information. I'm sure you were probably in awe. Like these are like the original bee tending people. <laughs> I think this is it. And I've been to Europe a number of times. I've spoken at a bunch of conferences there and um, had the wonderful opportunity to see the tree beekeepers who are in the Slavic countries and um, uh kind of Eastern Europe and what they were doing. And it was, it was very similar. They were um, raising bees the way nature does it, you know, in logs rather than in hives that are man-made that are detrimental to bees and letting, and, and with very little focus on honey with, with a lot more focus on um, how to care for them in a way that really encourages them to develop their beingness. So that's been, oh, wonderful seeing. And there's a whole movement in Europe about being more natural with the bees. And I have another book coming out in February 22 that talks about how do you do this? How do you bring this, these, this uh, experience of nature into harmony with how you're raising and tending bees? So I have a number of beehives around here. I don't buy bees. I don't believe in that process because I don't think the breeding system has a, has the bees' best interest in heart. 
Um, I don't even catch swarms anymore. I just build, I do two things. I build hives that I put out there on our land and see who shows up. And often these swarms come and just settle in. And the other thing I do is I plant forage. So as a beekeeper, that's the one piece of advice I give just about everybody. It's like, stop focusing on what I can get, the maximum of honey I can get from my bees. Let it be, how do you get a richness of experience by, by providing home and food for them? And that's, that's what I do now. I mean, it's funny to, I, I don't think of myself really as a beekeeper so much as a bee tender because I don't <laughs> manipulate the hives in any way. I don't go inside of them at all. I don't gather honey from them or anything. And people always ask me, they say, you know, well, does that mean you don't have any honey? It's like, I don't, I don't take the honey from live hives. Every once in a while, a hive dies. That's natural. When the hive dies, sure, I'll take some of that honey. That's from a hive that doesn't exist anymore. And a good significant part of that honey that I harvest, I also put aside because if I ever have a bad year for bees, I can always put that honey out and the bees, the, the new bees, the current bees can have some of that. Mm, that's so sweet. No pun intended. I mean, we're talking about honey. <laughs> so something you've said a few times now, and I don't really know, let alone the biodynamic approach to bee tending. I don't really know about like the modern mainstream beekeeping practices, but why are they spraying them with poison? What, what function does that serve? And you mentioned like killing the queens too. I've never yeah. heard of any yeah. talk of that. This may be a little more information than you than you need, but what happened about 20 years ago was uh, there was a, you know, we, global trade moves ships from one continent to another, and sometimes things hit, hitchhike on it. And so some, uh, mm. some predatory mites escaped into Florida and um, started attacking the hives. They were from Japan, Asia. And when they did that, the bees that are in the area that those mites live have a, a balance of relationship with it. It's a predator, but they can deal with it. These bees here in America had never seen Asian mites before. So they uh, got knocked down really fast. So that was our government's attempt to make it right was to spray the bees with poisons that do just shy of killing them, but hopefully killed the predatory mites. And in that process, what happens is, well, actually you do kill most of the mites, but you don't kill all of the mites. And what you do is you end up breeding mites that are stronger and stronger. And every three years they'll be, oh, that, that chemical doesn't work anymore. Now we need the next one up. So it's kind of a losing option there. You, you can understand how that goes. The other thing that happened yeah. is we have taken up this system of instead of having bees on farms like they've been all through history or in neighborhoods and communities, you know, bees are just everywhere. And um, people would have a relationship with them. But we didn't, I don't have 3,000 hives or 50,000 hives. So what you do is you have industries, agricultural industries in, in North America that um, really exploit the bees a great deal. For example, the almond farmers in California, 
where we grow most of the almonds in the world are grown in that part of California. Um, everything that grows there is an almond tree. They spray in between, spray Roundup in between rows and kill off anything that's not an almond tree. Um, because of that, there's no food for bees. So they hire conventional farmers who will bring in um, commercial gigantic loads of bees for a month and a half. And they'll get all the pollination and then those bees will get gathered up and brought from California up to Washington where they'll do the apple harvest and pollinate apple trees there. And then they'll go over to Minnesota and do the blueberries. And um, there's a whole sequence of it. Well, it's not really ideal um, because you're not letting, you're really not being kind to the bees in traveling them that way. But the other thing that happens is these bees came into Florida and in one year, because of the circuit that the conventional beekeepers um, take when they're doing this, the commercial beekeepers, it, it introduced bees into all 48 states in a year. Mm. You couldn't, wow. you know, the bees that were in California, the bees that came from actually Florida is first with the citrus. And then from there, they go to the almonds and from there in California. And then from there, the apples in Washington. So state by state, all of these bees were moved around. Frankly, you couldn't have designed a system that would have moved more mites into new areas better. <laughs> it was yeah, right. amazing for, uh, you know, in a year they were in all 48 states. Yikes. So what are, what's the alternative to spraying poisons? Cause I, I know that you don't do that practice. What do you do to protect your bees? Well, the first thing is we, we really, if we really want to help the bees, we need to develop systems that allow bees to be in one place and do their pollination there. I mean, really what it comes down to is this factory farming model just does not work for anything that's involved in it, except for profit. So whether it's, you know, cows in feedlots by the millions or whether it's trucking bees all over the nation, um, all of these things are really to the detriment of any living being that's taking part in a factory farming model. Yeah. I would even argue the, the consumers, too, who are receiving these products from the store. I mean, it just seems it's, it's like a just a really backward system where it's like we already have natural systems in place that would be able to provide similar results but because we end up destroying it in our prevention of xyz we have to like replace the natural order with this artificial like plastic version where we're just trucking bees across the country that's just yeah. such a bizarre idea to me yeah, and it goes into other systems, too. Like the first year we were here, one of my neighbors said, she's, she's so sweet. She came up to visit us one day and she said, you guys, you have this old farm, but you're not farming on it. And, you know, you should have chickens. And we said, we were so suggestible. We we're like, chickens? Yeah, well, please, sure. That sounds like a great idea. We should get some chickens. And she's my friend Brenda. She said, I just happen to have some chickens in my back seat. I brought them for you. <laughs> and she taught us how to raise chickens. And we, the first year we were going to raise not just egg layers, we were going to raise some chickens that we would butcher as chickens. And um, we got this, this kind of chicken called the, 
it's a it's a cross and this kind of chicken is bred for rapid growth S- six weeks mm. growth where versus you know when you have a regular normal chicken it would take a few months to raise it to have that much but these chickens we saw them we were like oh my god they're bred for having big breasts and not big legs so they couldn't carry their structure they couldn't carry the weight mm. of them they would they would actually end up sitting down in poop because they couldn't walk around comfortably oh. and they were oh it's disgusting and they were growing faster than they could walk around it oh. was it was just terrible oh, this is this is the cornish cross breed that is bred for factory farming so that mm. we don't want to do that again that's that's awful yeah and that's like the mainstream that that's like the most raised chicken right like yep, that's the have one like all that the tyson to, farms yeah if you go to the store if you go to tyson um if you look at the labels or anything those are cornish cross they're flavorless they're you know we it's funny i'm talking about this like we did used to raise animals and we butchered them however we don't do that anymore it just got too hard for us we we actually kind yeah. of leaned over into vegetarian because um, our relationship with the animals became different. I remember the last time that happened, my husband had gone to teach on the East Coast, and just before he left, he said, call the slaughterer and make an appointment to get this cow butchered. This is this cow's old enough now. And, and he called me up two days later, and he said, did you make the appointment with the slaughterer? And I said, yeah, it's in a few days from now. And he said, cancel it. And I said, how come? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. He said, because I keep thinking about this cow and it doesn't hurt enough. He said, that means I haven't developed a deep enough relationship with, with this cow. This, it was a steer. And I, I got it immediately. And that was the last cow we butchered because it was like, that's, that was as we were raising, we were raising um, cows and turkeys and chickens for meat. And then we had cows and goats for milk and we also had chickens for eggs it was the last time we did that after a few years because what we saw was our relationship with the animals was compromised um our job we always named them and other farmers would friends would come over and say why do you name them i hear that you're not supposed to name them because you get too (laughs) close to them it's like well, we, we do name them and we do lavish attention and love on them because that's what, you, that's what you're really supposed to do. You're supposed to have a relationship with this animal. And then on its last day, you thank them. We did that for about 10 years, maybe 12 or 14 wow. years. I forget how long. Yeah. And then one day we just said, we have to find food that we can eat that doesn't hurt other beings when we yeah. are eating it. So... We've kind of come a big circle from wow. from doing that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So he canceled the appointment because it didn't hurt enough? Like he didn't build deep enough of a relationship to justify yeah. slaughtering? Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. We, we felt like if we were going to be butchering animals, that we ought to be crying at the same time because it's a sad day. And anytime yeah. you're not doing that, you're not being compassionate about this animal's life. So 
it's, it's, a, it's fascinating. We've, we've moved through that now, so we don't we don't have meat animals anymore. Well, it's, it's amazing because it is kind of like it's a spiritual practice in that if you are going to do the slaughtering of animals, because it is the cultivation of compassion and you really need something to meet in order to kind of grow your capacity for compassion. So it's amazing that both you and your husband have used this, this farming opportunity in every interaction, it seems, as a means to deepen your awareness, you yeah. know, and I think that that is really something that's powerful and what I think is so important about making that connection to the land because it does have the ability to help you develop these really important crucial human experiences and yeah. abilities I had this uh, one time where uh, the slaughter and he was a wonderful man he's he retired from it but he was a wonderful man I remember he said I said when do you know how when is the right time to, he would shoot them through the head. And I said, and he would wait, he would wait, he would wait. And I said, what are you, what, what's going on? What are you doing then? And he said, I wait until the animal looks me straight in the eye. I said, and that's when I do it, which is really wow. powerful. Um, one time yeah. when we were butchering one of the steer, he said, well, are you ready? And the steer was in the corral there. He said, are you ready? And I said, give me just a minute. I just want to say goodbye. And I turned to this animal and I just opened my heart. And I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then he shot him and I was wide open. And I was just, oh my God, it was just like, like getting shot myself. It was so, I had no protection in front of me at all. And I realized that he was very hard of hearing. And when I turned around and said, give me one more minute, he never heard me say that. So he waited for oh, no. me and looked at him. But I felt it. It was like, whoa. Wow. Where I would have gone after I had done the opening and thanking is closing back down and protecting myself to prevent myself from having such an experience as I just did. So it was oh, really quite amazing and astounding. And that comes back to what you said about the Buddhist path of, you know, these things that seem like they're mistakes are really part of the path. And that was clearly mm. a big part of the path for me was to feel, wow, that's what it feels like to be fully present with an animal when he's dying. And I'm the one who said to make this happen. Yeah. Now, not everybody has wow. to believe the same way I believe, you know, we have leaned away from eating meat for our own reasons. I don't think that's wrong for everybody, but I think it's really helpful when you get an opportunity to see what your relationship with meat is like when you um, raise animals and are part of the killing process. You either yeah, continue I, doing I it. It's a, it almost seems like it should be a part of every basic education, like K through 12, like, we should have a little bit more exposure to the food systems so that we can actually have some information on whether or not we agree with it, you know, but we're so disconnected from our agricultural system, from, you know, our livestock systems. And I think a big part of that, I mean, you see people who, and, you know, a lot of the time it's not even, it's kind of out of ignorance, but they just go through a drive through line, they'll get a burger, a nice slab of meat, and then they consume it. There's no thought, there's no deliberation. It's just yeah. this non 
thing, you know, and it, that disconnect, I think, is also another thing that robs us from having a fully-fledged human experience, you know, we're yeah. disconnected from the life that we're living off of. We had an interesting thing happen when we first started keeping our cows. You know, we, we bought cows, and they came to our farm and stayed with us. But I remember when we bought our first cow, she was dull-eyed. She was very dull. She would just look at you, and there was nothing there. And we decided to, she was our first cow, we decided, you know, love has got to have a, a, a role in this. So we loved her, and we really, really worked on how do you love a cow, and how do you get her to understand that this is love coming forward. She had been raised in a conventional operation, you know, it's like, dullness was her job and slowly I saw her eyes change till she would look at you and she would actually really look at you look at us and we could look back it was like hello there's someone here I'm here for you and you're here for me and it was just delightful and and one more time we brought another female cow for a breeder onto the farm and that same thing happened she came with a calf they both had dull eyes and we were like, one day she had a spark in her eye. One day she could see us and we could see her. It was really wonderful. <laughs> That's an amazing kind of transformation. And it, I wonder if it's because they spent their entire lives in like kind of a heightened traumatic situation. So yeah, with no like stimulation. the natural response is to close. Yeah, yeah with no stimulation. You know, just stand here, yeah. eat what's given to you, poop. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, like our idea of cows and other livestock is largely, it's like kind of like the idea that like art imitates life, life imitates art. You know, like we've co-created this situation, which is creating this idea of a cow. Like we all like, oh, they're just like these dumb herd animals. But it's like, it's actually the thing that we created, which is dumbing them down and kind of robbing yeah. them of their life, you know, on so many yeah. different levels. So do you find that, and I mean, this might be a little grim based on where we just were, but after you would do the slaughtering process, after you would fully love this animal and take care of this animal, do you find that the relationship to the food part of it, like when you consume that meat, that it was a heightened experience? Was there something yeah. extra to it compared to when you would eat store-bought meat? Well, we really for at least 10 years, stopped eating store-bought meat. You know, even if I'd go to a friend's house, I didn't eat their meat because it seemed significant to know that this was an animal that we had raised, that we had loved deeply and taken through this whole process. And I would say, you know, if I was getting some meat out of the freezer, I would say, thank you again. Thank you again. I really appreciate your gift. Um, but we felt like we had a relationship with this cow or these chickens or the chickens were a little harder um, because they weren't as you didn't have as long with them but but we came to the same impasse we came to the part of like i don't think we can live who we want to be and have killing be part of it it, it sounds so it sounds weird, I know, because most of the world that I live in eats meat. 
And, you know, it's been interesting to watch myself go over into, I'm not 100% vegetarian yet, but I'm pretty darn close to it. Yeah. And well, that came just out of having these, the awareness. Yeah, it came out of, of having this awareness and this experience of what it's like to love an animal that then you eat later. So it really yeah. it brings up tons of questions about what right do I have to be the one determining that. But then you have this whole food system that's got a lot of cows in it. It's got a lot of chickens and turkeys and everybody else in it. Um, you know, what do you do with that? Yeah. Do you have any ideas on how we could transform this outside of a grassroots encouragement of people to, I mean, at least start yeah. by supporting local? <laughs> yeah, supporting local is the whole way to do this. I, I really think, you know, when you go into this food system that we've created, maximum profits for maximum <laughs> maximum misuse of an animal, um, you know, that's that's got to be something we step out of. When it comes back to family farms growing for their communities, you get to see that there are more places than ours having a relationship like this with the animals. So if you're going to be a meat eater, you should participate in it, participate with that relationship in some way, whether it's supporting a local farm or raising a your meat animals on your own. I have a friend who's a permaculturist who lives in Portland and she can't have cows on her land, obviously, because she's in a city with a little backyard, mm -hmm. but she raises rabbits and she's, she's oh, a meat eater. She's just growing something that's on a scale that she can handle. And, you know, I respect yeah. her for that. It's like she said too, you know, she butchers her own animals. She said, it's painfully hard, but if I want to continue to be a meat eater, then I'm the one that should be experiencing that this is difficult as well. Yeah. Especially with rabbits, man, that would be so tough. They're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know not yeah. everybody will agree with me and this, this has just been my personal path on finding it. Mine and my husband's, you know, talking a lot about how does this, how does this work and trying to find a way that sits well with us. Yeah. Well, and I think even if people disagree, I think at least having a conversation and looking at this idea of connecting to your food a little bit more directly, I think is something everybody should take some time to contemplate. And I think a big barrier to really engaging with that, I mean, to go find a farmer, to go connect to a local market, it takes time. So like, oh, this is the age of like the super center where everybody's going to a Walmart or another whatever you have on the West Coast. And I think, you know, this one-stop shop really fits the 40, 50-hour work week. But I think where people can make time and space is like we are so over-entertained and distracted that it is robbing us of our capacity to engage with local systems. And I think yeah. you, you can get really creative with how you make time to have that. And I think the benefit outside of having a better quality food source is that you are connecting with yourself as much you know you are taking time and space to really make the commitment to live in a more ethical way which makes you feel better you know as much as having good food does it brings vitality into the body to make those choices but it it is hard you know we're over yeah. entertained and overworked and 
Isn't that interesting where our conversation has taken us to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it all ties, you know, I, I think a big part of, I mean, tying it back to like the idea of the intuition, you know, uh, I think it all kind of stems from some of the same problems, which it really does kind of tip into another conversation on um, just the nature of our society in general and what we prioritize. And I think if we prioritize life and the human experience, like living an actual enlivening lifestyle, then I think all of these things start to co-arise, you know, intuition, then ethical participation in markets. They're all part of the same urge towards wholeness. Yeah, it is. That's a wonderful way you said that too. It is how do we become more whole and how do we create that in all the experiences we have with all that we have relationships with around us? How do we bring our wholeness to it? Yeah. And that's why I'm thankful people like you exist. Um, (laughs) And we are actually coming up on time. And I do want to give you a little bit of space to plug your new book that you have coming out next year. And just kind of like some ways people can interact with you. And um, I know you have some YouTube videos. I watched you next to a beehive without. Oh, do you want to see? Can you do that? Um, do you want to What's pull that? that up? Can you pull up um, that? Let's video? see. And it, let's see if I can. I've, I've never on. done it with this service, but I know it's Ooh, possible. Experience. Yeah, we're all learning here. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, so there's a Ooh, few of that. them. In the meantime, go, do the one that's on my website is spiritb.com. And if you go onto that front page, you scroll right down to the bottom, there's a video that maybe Brett can yeah. pull up. In the meantime... Yeah. Are you talking about the slow bees? Yeah. Yep, yep. Yep, See, okay. Yeah. Does- I, yeah, I think I can share my screen. Do you want to talk about your book first, or do you want to see the video first? Go ahead and see the video. Okay. All right. It's just loading here real quick. This is my book. What a beautiful cover, too. Yes, I'm really happy with it. It's called Song of Increase, Listening to the Wisdom of Honeybees for Kinder Beekeeping and a Better World. And this is now in English and French and Dutch and Spanish. And it's an audio book, which is really nice. The audio book is lovely. And, um, and then I have another book coming out called um i think i have a cover oh do i have the cover anyway it's called what bees want um beekeeping as nature intended (laughs) my hesitation there was when you're an author and you go through working with your publisher your your names get changed so many times so you have to remember what the most recent one is (laughs) yeah yep yep cool and i'll also have links to that too yeah, and that'll be um, out in. So, are you seeing? Are you are you seeing this at all? No, not yet. But I. Okay. Yeah, it looks like it might be freezing. Let's see. Let me try one more time. It's like not letting me. It's just blacking. Okay. All right, Riverside. I can talk about it. And if you get this book, yeah, it won't come do. with all the little page things on the side. This is my. <laughs> my can doggy. I pay extra for that or? <laughs> My favorite parts. 
Okay, so I, I don't think that this is actually going to work. This is kind That's of a new okay. service, so I think they're they're working stuff out. We can just tell people yeah. where to go. It's at spiritbee.com, and there's a front page, and then just scroll down to the bottom, and this is beautiful movie of of being in the midst of a swarm with probably 40,000, 50,000 bees around me. And it's yeah. lovely. Without and any protective gear. Without any protective gear or anything. It's just, you know, when you're in relationship with them, it's it's amazing. And to be in a swarm like that, you know, really, uh, that swarm was probably 20 feet on either side of me. And like 40,000, 50,000 bees are all moving around at the same time. And I've done this dozens of times, and never once have I seen a bee bump into another bee when they're doing that. I mean, think of that. They have this consciousness that lets them know where every bee is at the same time so that they don't just, I mean, if you if you put 50 humans in a room that big and said, quick, run fast. <laughs> bump, bump, yeah, bump, bump. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They have this consciousness, this awareness of where we all are at the same time. We're one and we're many all at the same time. And I just, I find that concept so thrilling. So yeah. it just, it just makes my heart sing. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely incredible that we've always had them here as teachers on how to co-inhabit. And I feel like, I mean, there's definitely cultures that have always celebrated that, but we've largely looked over it, you know? Yeah. How do you, and how, how much do you... more do we look over? You know, like maybe right. this year. Oh, yes. We yeah. already know the answer to that. We look over a lot. Yeah. Probably 99% of it, <laughs> you know, even the smartest and most wise among us probably are still missing a lot, but that's the exciting part, right? I'm just kind of curious before we um, move on, but like, how did you find the courage? How did you find the capacity to stand next to a hive like that? Like the safety, how did you find the trust and this confidence? It's incredible. Well, it started when I was at the front of the hive. I realized, you know, like I said, midsummer, my first year, I was in the hazmat suit. It was sweaty and hot and 90 degrees and... You know, it's like, well, do I really need to have the my my sleeves duct taped to my gloves? You know, maybe I could take that off. And bit by bit, I just kind of realized that they didn't have any animosity towards me. They didn't have any, they didn't care, frankly. They didn't care that I was there or not. And eventually it would be, you know, well, I just need to move this out of the way and I don't have my bee suit on that maybe I could step forward and move this bucket and gosh, there I did walk through a bunch of bees and nobody bumped me. Nobody cared. Wow. No one got angry at me. And it just happened over time. And it did not happen my first year. It, it took a long yeah. time. You know, I, I always talk about the thousand, your first thousand hours of being with bees. I suggest to people when they want to do that, that when they want to learn how to be with bees, that you just sit with them. And you watch and you don't identify behaviors. You don't do anything that entertains your mind. You just be present with them and watch them. And they'll, they'll eventually teach you things that you didn't know were even available. I just one day felt like I knew they were safe with me. I knew they meant me no harm whatsoever. And I, I don't remember which time it was, but I remember I did it. I just went in with my hands and moved a swarm and you know, scooped them up and put them in a 
a swarm basket and no one stung me. And wow. that kind of taught me a real physical way of knowing something that I had only known in my mind, that they were, they were safe and kind. And if I could be safe and kind too, like that, if I could have that same vibe around me, that we could be quite compatibly in the same space together without causing each other harm. Wow. And, and just in case you want to know, it's incredibly exhilarating to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, I'm sure. It's like taking a super deep breath and all of a sudden you have air in you. you just this, this joy, you're walking through 40, 50,000 bees who are in a moment of pure joy. It's just, it, it just yeah. fills you, just fills me when I do that. Wow. <laughs> so on the nature, I mean, something most people think of with bees and they see something like that is like, yo, she's going to get stung. What would you say on like the nature of getting stung as somebody who has worked with them for so long? And that's something that most people are afraid of bees for, you know, there's so much fear around them because of the potential of getting stung. No, I've what been would you stung, say? I've been stung a few times. A bunch of times but the stinging yeah. has happened um the most stings i ever got was a time when i opened the beehive the day after fourth of july and in my state fireworks are legal and i didn't think of it and the bees came out like you know who the hell are you <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh i got stung a whole bunch of times and i was like why did that happen and then my friend susan was with me and she said do you think it had anything to do with the fireworks we were up here listening to last night you know, boom, 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 probably, mm -hmm. um, you know, that was, yeah. <laughs> that was called for. They were being defensive because they'd been assaulted by sound sonic booms for four or five hours the night before. Sometimes I've gotten stung by sticking my finger into the bottom of a dead bee and stung myself with a dead bee. That can happen. <laughs> um, one time I had injured my hand doing clipping. I was helping an old friend of ours who was elderly and prune his orchards. And I, I did the pruner. I, I clicked that pruner like, you know, a thousand times in the day. And the next day, my hand was so sore from pruning so much the day before. And it was February. And bees are not even really active much in February, at least where I live. You know, there's no, nothing is quite in bloom yet. And I went up to check on my bees and this bee came out. And I said, oh, look, one of the bees came out. This is so nice to see a bee in February because I haven't seen them through the winter. And she came out and she turned around and she looked at me and she just kind of hovered and she came down and she landed on my thumb and I was looking at her and then she just squatted her little hind end down and stung me. And I went, what, what did you do that for? What, like, <laughs> and, and she injected a little bit of venom in me and I was having a moment of like, wait a minute, that's not the way it works. And then I noticed yeah. <laughs> that that little sting, my hand didn't ache anymore. When she injected that little bit of venom in there, it took all the pain away from my hand that had really been hurting that day. So she recognized something in me. You know, she could have landed anywhere on me and stung or not stung. And it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have noticed it but the fact that she landed right where the hinge of my joint was that was so sore and then gave me some medicine gave me some bee medicine 
Isn't that cool? <laughs> that's a, that's an amazing story. I remember also hearing on some documentary that people were using bee stings to treat yeah, various illnesses too. Yeah, it's Whoa. called apothera. It's a whole medium of, of medicine that's good medicine, natural medicine. Wow. Holy crap. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So that is where we are at for time. I think that that's like the perfect yeah, story to end good. on with bee medicine. What a delight nice being boat. here. Thank you so much. Yeah, being. I was trying really hard to not use every bee pun that I had. Like, it was really hard for me to reserve myself. Good job. Good job. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you got that one at the end. That was it. So, yeah, folks can find you at spiritbee.com. Um, and your new book is coming out, you said, February of 2022? February is called What Bees Want. Beekeeping as Nature Intended. So we have a website, whatbeeswant.com, that we're just in the process of setting up now. So that is also available. Wonderful. And your so book, your first you. book is already available, of course. Yeah. Yes. Song of Increase. Ta-da. Yeah. What a great name, Thanks. too. I like that a lot. They yeah. named it. Awesome. <laughs> oh, well, they did really good. Yeah, you're with... Um, <laughs> Uh, what was the publishing company? It was Sounds True, I think. Sounds True, yeah. Yeah, they're they have a lot of really good work out there. They're they got some good stuff. More, more spiritual than agricultural, and I was so happy mm -hmm. that someone saw that a publisher saw that and recognized that this is this is a book that's not just about agriculture; it's also about spirituality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got some good stuff. Yeah. All right, Jacqueline, thank you so much. I really appreciated this. Um, you're very sweet, and you, yeah, blew my mind. So. <laughs> Take care. I'm so honored that you asked me. Yeah. Thank you very much. Of course. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. Myself and Jacqueline both appreciate it. I'm sure I spoke for her. Uh, I, I did with, with confidence. I'm sure she would also appreciate um, yeah, tune in in two weeks. We have another really amazing conversation with TC Tarot out of LA, uh, and it's all about divination. I even have a um, tarot reading myself that episode. So if you're at all interested in reading tarot, if you don't really know what it's about, if you think it's satanic, whatever you think about it, um, just show up in two weeks and you'll get the crash course on how to read for yourself, your friends, what exactly it is. It was really fun. Um, but yes, today we had Jacqueline Freeman. If you want to keep in touch with her platform, it is spiritbee.com. Again, she has the book A Song of Increase, listening to the wisdom of honeybees for kind of beekeeping in a better world. She's got another book coming out next year, um, which is 2022. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you want to support the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. You can subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all the things. I told myself I wouldn't be one of those content creators that constantly asked for things but you know it's a part of the game so um thank you so much for listening i will talk to you in two weeks